On this episode of AvTalk, Jason and Jeremy Dwyer Lindgren report on their visit to London on the 60th anniversary of the first transatlantic jet flight. We get ready to welcome back the world's longest flight, and we look at Primera Air's bankruptcy and what it might mean for the ultra-low-cost transatlantic market. Hello and welcome to episode 42 of AvTalk. I am Ian Pechnik here as always with... Jason Rabinowitz. Hello, Ian. Welcome back, Jason. You've done some traveling. I have. It's a big change from my summer of nothing. (laughs) Your summer of nothing means that I had a summer of really nothing. Yeah, but I'm back. Yeah. Well, welcome back. You were in London, which we'll talk about in a little bit later on in the episode when we bring back uh, Jeremy Dwyer Lindgren to talk about what you and some other folks were doing in London. But you also went a little bit further afield to Rome, I think? Rome, then took a train up to Milan and then flew back to Heathrow. There you go. A nice, uh, what was it, a couple days or something? Yeah, like three and a half days or something. That's a nice little getaway yeah. room. I, you know, I'll take it. Fun times. A little bit of pasta. A lot of pasta. No, a lot of pasta. A lot yeah. of pasta. There, there you go. Let's be realistic. Pasta and gelato, I think, is the Much mandatory. of those items were consumed. Yeah. And cats. And cats. Yeah. Rome has a lot of cats for some reason. They do have a lot of cats. Did you go to the ruins that are kind of run by the cats? I did. And there were many cats there. And they kind of <laughs> followed of me around. There. Well, I mean, that's, you know, they, they like you. That's what they do. They they roam around and they, they act like they own the place because they pretty much do. Because they do. Yeah. Well, good. Well, well, welcome back. I did not do any traveling, sadly. But maybe next time we talk, I'll have, you know, somewhere to report. Maybe I'll have gone to the store or something. Oh, that's, that's good. I don't know. I don't know. It might, might branch out. I want to apologize to anyone listening. I'm fighting off probably the beginnings of a, of a cold. So I, I apologize if halfway through the episode today, I, I end up sounding like Don LaFontaine. Um, I, I might just fall asleep. The jet lag's kicking so, in. So we're, we're going to power through this episode because we've got a lot to talk about and we'll let Jeremy do some of the heavy lifting later on. Let's get into it with the return of the world's longest flight. Soon. Not yet. Soon. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's not back yet. It's it's back in a couple of days. Today's the ninth. It, well, it'll be back by the time the episode comes out. The first re-inaugural, re-inauguration? Re-re-something. Recycled, re-upped. Non-stop flight from Singapore to Newark Airport will have landed or be landing, depending on when you download and listen to the podcast. And then the return flight will take off later in the day back to Singapore from from Newark. And that's, I think the block time is 18 hours and 30 minutes or 19 hours. And maybe we should- uh, It's a lot. Yeah, it's it's, a a long time. I I just did something like eight plus hours in in business class on BA back to JFK because we had some pretty damn heavy headwinds on the way back. And even then, it was just like enough. And the difference here with the launch, the flight, this will also be the the first flight of the A350 ULR, which we've discussed in in previous episodes. And that compared to the old A340-500 that they used that was an all business class configuration, this one will actually have economy on it. Premium economy. Or yeah, premium account. Not sorry. regular. Well, it, yeah. So would you do that? Would you do – because we've talked about this before how you know flight time isn't the only time you're in the airplane. So you're looking at an extra hour basically. 
Oh, at least at time. least an extra hour. I don't know if I'd do it. I've done JFK New York to Taipei in premium economy. And that was what, 15 plus hours. The same with Shanghai, New York, I did in regular economy. Yeah, it's it's super unpleasant after after a, a certain number of hours, you just kind of hit a wall and you want off. But what's the difference? 15, 18, at that point, you're already in it. Yeah. I mean, you might, <laughs> might as well just keep going. Right. Exactly. But it's, yeah, in any seat, whether you're an economy, premium economy, business or first, you're, you're just going to want off the plane at some point. Yeah. So, I mean, that's why they'll, they'll put in, you know, treadmills and and lounges and bunks and things like that for when they do the the London Sydney flights, right, Jason? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I found that funny. There was, you know, somebody re-upped that. It's basically a Qantas PR piece or a whatever it is that is being passed off as news, where they're like, "We're going to add, you know, a, a lounge and things like that." I'm like, "Well, it's it's only another two hours." On top of the Singapore Newark flight, so why change the plan? Uh, how, how long did the seven four seven retain its piano bar or whatever on the upper deck? I think it lasted a couple weeks. How many decades ago did airlines decide? You know what? Screw it. We're putting seats up there. It's been decades. So if an airline can put seats somewhere instead of a, a fancy amenity, they're gonna put seats there and make money off of it every time. I suppose you could charge for the treadmill, like buy the step or something like that. An airline wants to figure out how to put bunk beds in and and the belly of the aircraft. I will happily pay for that, but that's a whole other story than and treadmills and movie theaters and cafes. But if they were to do something truly innovative, like put bunk beds down in the belly of the aircraft that you could rent for a few hours, I would do that in a freaking heartbeat. And I think well, and, most and we talked about would. this from uh, from AIX last year. Yep. So I mean, it's there's still you know umpteen hurdles to, to yeah. get to the certification, is, is but possible? their idea is there. Yeah, it's possible. Is it probable or even likely? Hell no. <laughs> That's uh, I'm putting you down in that, that category in the odds making. There you go. But the flight comes back this week. Lots of regulars on it. Lots of aviation media and, and av geeks writ large will be on the flight. Probably one of the most sought after tickets in the av geek community in a long time. And Jeremy, who we'll be talking to in a little bit, will also be on the flight and some other folks. And so we'll hopefully hear from them. The goal right now is to talk to Jeremy as quickly as possible after he gets off the flight. Um, and he'll be taking the flight from, from Newark to Singapore. Uh, you know so the flight the flight has Wi-Fi. So why don't we talk to him during our 17 and a half? Well, we could talk to him during, but what I'm really looking forward to is is talking to him after, as soon as possible after the flight, before he's had time to reflect on it, to get that raw, you just spent 18 hours in a plane feeling. But we'll get there. We'll get there when we get there, I guess. Looking forward to that and and hopefully taking that flight uh, at some point now that it's back. Looking forward to having you know one of the, the world's longest flights uh, caps on my head. But we mentioned the, the Singapore a350 that or a340 500 that formerly flew this route and today a weird thing happened this was weird an a340 500 went back in to service that doesn't happen normally 
airlines have been spending down their A34500s as quickly as possible. Well, I mean all A340s, not just the 500s. Oh. Right, but but the the 500 in particular because it, it is a unique combination of inefficiency. But Global Airways in, in a South African charter operation is bringing one of them back into service. So they must have gotten a a screaming deal. But it, it flew to Johannesburg yesterday and I guess look for it in service soon. Doing uh, what? Charter operations of some kind. I honestly don't know. I have no information beyond it's going to Global Airways. It went back into service and I was extremely surprised. Yeah. I'm looking at uh, Flight Radar now and guess how many A34500s I see actively flying in coverage? Zero. Zero because there aren't any. I think HiFly has a couple that it repossessed from uh, Eric Air in Nigeria. Yeah, that, that still have that full. Well, it ha- it's like half a livery now. Yeah, Etihad retired its entire fleet. Emirates retired its fleet. Um, yeah, th- this particular frame was an ex Emirates aircraft that was stored in 2014. And so I'm it's been not aware there for a while. Any other airline in the world operating the 345 at this point? Is it Air Leisure, the Cairo-based operator? Was it were those five hundreds or two hundreds? I know they were. I know they were not the standard three hundred or six hundred. But um, let's see. Air Leisure has uh, apparently, according to Planespotters.net, none in their fleet right now. They had two hundreds. Okay, they had two hundreds. That's what it 200s, was. Two hundreds, which is um, an even more unique, right? combination and of inefficiency that and it was you know four hair dryers attached to a, a plane that somehow magically made it off the runway most I of the time that plane royal jordanian used to fly it to to jfk and it just 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 looked wrong it looked wrong but it sounded so good it did it, it really did so good on departure they royal jordanian used to fly them to to chicago as well and, and now by montreal i think right no it was a it was an oh flight. no the detroit flight went through montreal yeah right. yeah and the departure was always it was that late evening departure and you could always hear it uh hear it far and wide oh i know someone that still operates the a345 yes azerbaijan azerbaijan but I think it might be – no, they have two. Yeah, that's right. That's right. That's right. They have. They used to fly to JFK before they got to 787s. They are one of the few, if not the only airline that I can think of that operates the 345. Well, and they we, have we a 346, a, but that's in, in VIP config. We should start a 340-500 only airline. So looking quickly, there are operators of the 345, but they're mainly government at this point. The state of Kuwait, Royal Thai Air Force – Qatar, um, a Mary flight, Turkish government, Las Vegas Sands Corporation, really? Yeah, yeah. That's about the, it. Las Vegas Sands has a, a one of the most interesting fleets. I mean, they've got A34500, they've got a 747, two 747SPs. I mean, some, some yeah. really are interesting models. They have them. I don't know how active they are. I haven't, I haven't checked in a while. Hmm. But yeah, it appears the the five hundred is an extremely uh, rare breed. Well, this new one will be back in service soon, and you can follow it. The registration is two dash Romeo Lima Alpha Whiskey two R Law, and they should be taking another soon. Actually, well, there you go. Then so they'll they'll have a pair. So Global Airways, 
have fun. Yeah, looks like the second that they're expecting will be from Etihad, actually, not oh, okay. Emirates. Already going for fleet uncommonality. <laughs> well, I mean, who knows what they've done to the inside? Although probably, probably nothing. So out of uh, Tarmac Aerosave in in France, some very cool stuff today. Some very surprising stuff today. That that one really caught me off guard. Yeah, that's unusual. Not catching me quite as off guard as an A340-500 coming back into service was last week's Primera Air bankruptcy. Yeah, not totally surprising, but super unexpected when it happened. Right. I mean, they had been plagued by late deliveries from Airbus, which really screwed them over to start the their long-haul operations since they didn't have any aircraft capable of doing it. They had to lease nasty 757s from National and some other equipment. So they got off to a real rocky start and they were selling flights for really, really, really cheap. But they were they were selling and they seemed to be doing okay. They had in September made several large-scale route expansion announcements, I think, out of Barcelona and uh, London, I think, London or Paris, one of the two. So they were planning on like, expanding several times in September, and then all of a sudden they're like, "Yeah, we're done. We're out of business. The whole thing's done." Yeah, from from the statements they put out, it was just the the cash dried up. They couldn't keep going. Yeah, and it, it seemed very sudden because they actually stranded crew overseas. Yeah, uh, yeah there was so a, a crew that was in Toronto that was trying to get home. I think Wizz Air finally got them home. Right. So there was absolutely really no notice to anyone. And it, it it's a shame. It's another example of a stable but smaller airline in, in Europe doing their thing, get, setting their sights on something too big, trying transatlantic service, failing, and then the entire thing goes bust. Because they they, they're not a new airline. They've been doing leisure and vacation work out in in Europe for quite a while with 737-800s, but now the, the whole thing is gone. Yeah, it, it was really interesting. I mean, and a lot of discussion is centered on, you know, the their rapid expansion and, and how the A321neo delivery delays kind of affected their cash position. The other interesting thing that they, they listed- Yeah, this is nonsense too. When, when they were talking about their reasons for basically filing for bankruptcy, they had a 737-800- that was affected by severe uh, – they, they listed it as severe corrosion problems. And, and this was YLPSD. And it was out of service from the beginning uh, – the end of February 2017 to the middle of February 2018. And they basically took the front half of the airplane and replaced it, replaced the skin of the aircraft from you know just in front of the nose, the, the flight tech windows to – behind the overwing exit doors, basically, and did a whole rework on the front of the aircraft and then you know, re- repainted it and put it back into service. But it was just incredible. And they said it cost them you know, something like or 10 million euros, an impressive amount for something that you would think, well, why, how was that not caught beforehand? Right. You know, things, it, I mean, something on that scale, I mean, and looking at pictures, we can toss one in the show notes about how extensive, extensive the repairs yeah. were. I mean, it, it seems like that maybe should have been caught before. Yeah. Either way, 
they're gone. Um, they actually had a brand new 737 Max on the flight line in Renton, ready to go. But Boeing will be looking for a new partner to take that. Luckily, aircraft. it wasn't fully painted, so they can they can just slap some new paint on it. My my thinking was that it, you know the colors are so similar to Condor or, or or Thomas Cook. I mean, they can just you know give it to them. Done. Yep. So Primera Air, you were uh, a short stint, but maybe, I don't know, some foreshadowing to some some more of the same. Well, I mean, m- here's the interesting question. I, the Max 9 is less interesting to me because it, it's not completely built yet and it'll, you know, it'll find a home very similar. But there's five A321neos that are in need of a home. Two were flown to Malta. The ones owned by GCAS were flown to Malta last week. I assume for temporary storage and possibly rework, but delivery to whom, I guess, is the question. Don't know. And one of the things floated was, will BA take them? So, I mean, maybe given the the delays to the A321 Neo program and, and BA is expecting, you know, it, what could they, you know, kind of get a jump start with these that are now on the market? So that was that was an interesting point of discussion that was that was raised raised to me in an email by a listener. So we'll see what happens there. But it'll be interesting to see what happens. Their entire fleet was leased. So they don't have to worry about selling the planes or anything like that. But I, I assume the lessers are less than enthused about what's happening here. Yeah, not great. So Primera Air, you were long gone at this point, but not forgotten. I don't even think they were around that long. Honestly, they were founded in 2003. So 15 years. Yeah, they've been around a good while, but surprising in the timing that it just seemed to happen so damn suddenly. I mean, when you run out of cash, you, you kind of run out of options too. Yeah, maybe they shouldn't have been announcing all these route expansions and new hubs and without actually having any money. Well, I mean, but the interesting thing was is, is that is no different than some of the other kind of low-cost carriers or ultra-low-cost carrier things that we've seen where, you know, announce 900 new routes, but in the same announcement, cancel 898 of the old routes. I mean, so that that leapfrogging from from route to route until you find something that works and then that sticks around and and you keep keep working the model. Yeah. And yeah, they were uh, still selling flights up until well, after they had announced that they were out of business, which is kind of not great and It'd be terrible if someone actually bought a flight. I mean, from from what I heard from people on Twitter at the moment People were checking in for flights, paying for bags, getting down to the to the gate through security, and took a bus out to the plane, only to find that there was no crew, and then the airport's gonna have to scramble to figure out what to do with these passengers because suddenly there there were there was no staff. That's kind of ridiculous. And I'm sure there are many thousands of people probably that have tickets booked on Primera who don't know that this airline doesn't exist anymore. I mean, their their website's gone. It doesn't. There is no more website. So sure, there's going to be some people ready to go on a, a European or American adventure, only to get to the airport to find out that the airline is go- long gone. That's going to be rough. Yeah. I mean, it happened at, at Newark a few times over the summer with Level, since they delayed flights by a couple of weeks and couldn't get a hold of everyone. People went to the airport and found out, oh, this airline hasn't started flying here yet. That's a problem. 
yeah, that that could be a problem. Yep. <laughs> I hope that never happens to me. I, I feel no. like it, I feel like it wouldn't, but but I really hope it never happens. Yeah, we're not to kind me. of the we're not really the type of people who wouldn't notice our airline we've booked on has has vanished overnight. I'm the kind of guy who's you know obsessively checking. Has the gate changed? So well, yeah, I'm, I'm fairly certain I'd know if the airline was flying to. But I, you know, know. But I, that's completely understandable for you know folks who fly once a year or something, or one every two years and go on vacation or something like that. It's terrible. Well, Primera, adios. Should we take a quick break, and yes. then we shall bring in Jeremy Dwyer Lindgren and talk about what you two gentlemen and uh, a host of other folks got up to in London this past what week. Did we get up to? We'll find out in just a moment, so stick with us. Welcome back. We are joined by Jeremy Dwyer Lindgren now, who joined Jason in London last week to celebrate the 60th anniversary of the first transatlantic jet flight. Welcome, Jeremy. Thanks for having me back, guys. Hey, Jeremy, was this like your 41st time back on the show? I think you get like a free keychain or something like that with the punch card now. Yes. So you guys went over to to London along with a host of other people and British Airways brought you over and you experienced the company of, of folks who were on the flight. Uh, I mean, tell me more about what was going on. Take it away, Jason. So yeah, we went uh, quite fittingly. We all flew transatlantic over to London to participate in a lecture about the 60th anniversary of the first transatlantic jet flight, which the honor of which went to BA's predecessor, British Overseas Airline Company. What do, what does BOAC stand for again? Actually, I can't remember. Was it that? British Overseas Airways Corporation. Close enough. So yeah, B- British Airways' predecessor was celebrate. They were celebrating the the milestone of the 60th anniversary of the first transatlantic jet flight, and they're quite proud of it. They're obviously a huge operator of transatlantic flights now, and they had a couple of special guests on hand to to recount their experiences over the years. One of them was, I believe, a navigator on the the aircraft that. The aircraft type that had operated that flight, which was the Constellation, not Constellation. Wow, Stratocruiser. Jeremy, you take that. Wait, wait, no, no, that, that's one. also wrong. Comet. That's also ah, wrong. We know what we're talking about. We're professionals. Damn it, Comet Four. Yes, the Comet Four, not the Comet One, Two, or Three, but Comet Four, the one that didn't kill all the people that were on board, and, and definitely not a piston airplane. Right. Now, he was a navigator on board, and he had some interesting stories to tell about that. And they also had one of the flight attendants, actually, that operated the second flight, the first ever eastbound flight, so the return from New York. And she is now 91 years old and had still nothing but enthusiasm when discussing this this flight. And Jeremy, you actually got to talk to her for a few minutes. Yeah, briefly. Unfortunately, didn't get the opportunity to talk much longer, but it, it certainly stuck with me. The To your point, the level of enthusiasm she had, she uh, was quite, quite willing to talk, remembered a lot of the details. I think what really stuck with me was she had worked Stratocruisers prior, which was a 20-hour adventure with a few fuel stops in between. 
and she noted that they went from talking about a, you know, the flight will land in 20 hours to six hours and 15 minutes. And the, the kind of the tone of her voice. And I think you heard that part too, Jason, in which she was just still like the, the idea that you could go that much faster that you could do it in a third, the time you had over a third, the time you had prior clearly still stuck with her is something that just almost seemed impossible that you could make that kind of quant- that kind of jump in time. Right. And there, there really, to this date, hasn't been anything quite as dramatic from the change between propeller-driven aircraft over the Atlantic to jet aircraft. Sure, the the Concorde was, is faster than traditional jets, but not as meaningfully fast as, as this change was, I think. No, and it certainly didn't have as dramatic and far-reaching of an effect you know, I don't, I don't even think about it anymore that you hop on a jet, you go across the Atlantic, you go somewhere between five and 600 miles an hour, roughly, and you get to your destination without a problem, smoothly, safely, generally smoothly, safely. And certainly in the era of piston jets with the Stratocruisers, which weren't terribly reliable, DC-6s, 7s, Britannias, all these piston aircraft, it certainly wasn't a smooth experience, and it was often a terribly long one, and it was generally reserved for the wealthiest of people on the planet. And I think that moment right there when he switched to the, the Comet 4 and the 707 a few weeks later was the, the harbinger of the true jet age, which ultimately led to easy, safe, and affordable air travel that we've seen since. Right. What I found most fascinating about the the lecture was that this event did not happen without a fair bit of controversy. Obviously, any airline would want to be the first and foremost to have the first transatlantic jet flight. And BOAC kind of almost landed in their lap. They weren't expecting it, but they were in a race with, at the time, Pan Am to operate the first flight. And some things never change in that uh, the Port Authority of New York very suddenly and unexpectedly gave Brit- uh, BOAC permission to operate the, the flight instead of Pan Am. And BOAC got that first opportunity. And did I see right that people in in true New York fashion booed BOAC passengers when they arrived from the first flight? That's the legend anyway, is that when the first Comet arrived from London, landed and his passengers were deplaning, they were booed by Americans who were upset, and I assume some Pan Am employees, who were upset that the British had beaten them to it. And Pan Am had been plastering New York City and I believe London with ads for weeks saying that we're going to be the first, we're going to be the ones to to get all jet service. And like you said, BOAC basically stumbled, it stumbled into their lap. They flew it over a few days prior to run some noise tests. And I don't think they really expected it would go very far at first. And I don't think they thought the Comet would be particularly long lasting. It wasn't really built for transatlantic flight and it didn't spend the rest of its short life there either. But they got it approved at the last minute. And as the flight attendant said, they were playing a cat and mouse game. And all of a sudden, BOAC got the approval and they set off on the flight the very next day. Didn't even wait. Pan Am was another two to three weeks. Yeah, so BOAC only beat them by a couple short weeks, but it was enough to make it make it matter in the history books. And Pan Am... They used a much larger aircraft, which I think they they marketed as such that we operated the first meaningful transatlantic jet service. Did they? What did they use? The the seven O? 
get they used the 707 and that was larger it was faster considerably more economical and even boac replaced the comet with the 707 by 1960 or 61 replaced the comet with it it was in the dc-8 as well which came a year later in 59 where they crushed the comet in sales which is a shame but if I remember correctly, BA was only using the, the Comet because they at the time they couldn't afford the 707. After World War II, I believe they said they basically were bankrupt and had no money and they couldn't afford the Boeing aircraft that they really wanted until they could eventually pick them up later. So they settled for the, the little Comet. Yeah, certainly I remember the one of the historians at British Airways Speedbird Center, which is their company museum, talking about that they they really wanted the 707. They knew that the Comet was not built for the job. And obviously, prior to the 707, the Comet had taken a little break for some retooling, so to speak. And Yes, uh, retooling retooling is definitely (laughs) a way to... Or complete redesign, you know. For for anyone who doesn't know what we're talking about, the Comet 1 was was known for having some tragic design flaws because it was a very, very early jet aircraft. They didn't quite have all the uh, engineering worked out. And there were some issues with the riveting, apparently, and also the the window design that had a terrible tendency to break apart in flight and kill everyone on board. Yeah, there was that. And that certainly gave Boeing and Douglas and even Tupolev, which came up with the TU-104 in 56, the second jet ever to be commercially produced, actually, gave them an opportunity to learn from some of the lessons that Comet made. And I think that the historian said that they kind of owed it. They wouldn't. It, they knew by the time that the Comet 4 came out that it was already, in many ways, past its time, even though it was ahead at first. And they kind of owed it to BOAC and a few other of their customers to bring them to fruition. But certainly, they didn't last very long. I think BOAC purged them from their fleet in 65, and they spent transatlantic for a few years, and then switched to mostly up and down to Africa and out to what would now be East Asia. Well, BOAC and BA eventually got their Boeings, obviously, and to the point where they, until very recently when the A380 was introduced, were completely Boeing wide body, actually. Boeing had a good run. Yeah. So now they've just got, uh, was it 10 or 12 A380s? So they were all Boeing until very recently. Yeah, 12 A380s. And then the A350s come in next year? Soon. Yeah. So they're they're elsewhere in the IAG partners right now with, with Iberia, but not quite yet in BA, but they're they're coming. But it was really cool to hear firsthand, especially from Hugh Dibley, which was the navigator on the Comet 4 and a host of others. He had a really distinguished career all the way down from the Comet up to, I think he said he was a, a flight training captain on the A320 family. Did I get that right? Yeah, I believe he worked for, I want to say he worked for Airbus in his last few years doing a lot of their test flying and, and captain uh, program. I think he said he even worked on the A340 that was that's now going doing the laminate testing and, uh, and out of Toulouse. He did. So that that's quite a ridiculous career to go from something as primitive by today's standards is the comet all the way up to uh testing technologies like that on the a340 and highly computerized airframes like the 320 is kind of it's a hell of a career yeah talk about the changes that you that you would see in flight technology and crew culture and just in the business more broadly and to get to pick someone's brain even for briefly and, and hear them talk is always 
an opportunity that you can't pass up. Yeah. So I guess when he started flying the Comet, they didn't exactly have GPS navigation back then. So he was, he, uh, was remarking how they would navigate with by um basically by navigating by the stars and uh, using their astrolabe and all that good stuff to figure out where the hell they were and recounting how they were doing all those manual computations back then based on the the star patterns and when they actually got the the high tech stuff later to pinpoint their position he, I think he said he was kind of surprised about how ridiculously accurate that was and that they were never really further off, very far off from where they thought they were at any given time. Yeah, the level of surprise that he he had with that sometimes was concerning. <laughs> if I knew my navigator and my face, huh, look at that. We're pretty close <laughs> we to where right I thought all those we were. Years. So he's, he's saying that they were surprised how, how right they were prior to the modern technology. Exactly. Back in the, gotcha, the primitive gotcha. days when they were literally looking out the window of the aircraft and lining up the stars onto a map to figure out where they were. And once they actually got precise equipment, it was he was taken back by how accurate their primitive methods of figuring out where they were actually were. And the navigator could be a uh, sometimes dangerous job sometimes. I'm trying to remember which of the early piston aircraft, I want to say it was the Constellation, originally had a little bubble. It might not have been the Constellation, but either way, one of the earlier piston long-range aircraft had a little bubble on the top, and the navigator would stick their head in, but occasionally the bubble wouldn't, its integrity would break down, and then, well, they'd be short a navigator after that, so was a job with some drawbacks at times. Yeah, that, I would say that uh, that's quite the drawback. But yeah, overall it was it was a really cool thing. They had a a good number of people there to listen to the to the lecture and they they're obviously very proud of their heritage at BA. They have the Speedbird Center they now call it where they have a, a large collection of the company's history, tons and tons of models or all, all sorts of artifacts which I could spend days in there and try to steal a couple things. Yeah, there looked like there were a bunch of drawers that I didn't ask about getting into, but looked like they had all sorts of goodies inside them. Yeah. So if you can actually tour the Speedbird Center in BA's headquarters, you have to we've go on their website and, and call ahead to make arrangements to do so. So you can't just walk in, but it is actually open to the public. So if you happen to find yourself in by the, the waterside headquarters, I highly recommend you, you take a stroll through there. I would agree. So while you were there, I know, Jason, you got up to some other things, breaking one of uh, British Airways simulators. Uh, I in the did process. not break it. Paul Thompson broke it. Ah, well, I since Paul's not here, it was already broken. E easy to throw. Well, even so, you're even more impressive in that you flew a, a broken simulator. Yeah, that was fun. Uh, Jeremy missed out on that because the Seattle flight gets in way later than all 15 of the <laughs> New York flights. But BA has a, a very impressive collection of simulators. And since we were out there early, they invited us over to, to play around with one of the, the 747-400 sims as all the others were unsurprisingly in use for, for pilot training. And they have, uh, let's see, they have a bunch of 777s, A320 family. I think they're getting an A351 very shortly. But they put us in one of the 747-400 sims and pretty much... As soon as we did the first takeoff rotation, all of the CRT monitors, all the primary and secondary flight displays and the uh, altitude indicators and all that kind of blinked out. There was some sort of short in the system. 
but everything else worked the the motion the the um scenery and all that so it was very odd to fly a 747 full motion simulator without any real instrumentation which is not a scenario that they Yay. ever really train for or plan for because simply it, it does not happen so they put us in and i did a couple approaches to jfk 13 left the canarsie approach which is a highly visual approach where you follow the the lead-in lights and you have to cross over them at certain altitudes and man that thing that that's tough in a 747 but i did it and then i did it again the next day by myself congratulations thank you (laughs) they only have to replace the simulated nose gear but it it landed and i just went home (laughs) any any landing you can walk away from Right, it's tricky, especially when you have no indication of your speed, heading, altitude, or any any of that good stuff. But a newfound respect for any pilot that has to do that hideous approach after fifteen hour flight in questionable weather. It's uh, it's not easy. But the downtime of the the simulator did also give us some time to head over to the engineering center and investigate one of their A three eighties that was in the hangar. Since we had some time to spare, we basically just. Went all around an A380, poked around all inside, and the crew rest and everything. And that that thing is just—it's still just amazing to be that up close to an A380 because it's just a monstrous machine. Very cool. Is there anything else that you guys got up to that uh, that you'd like to share? I mean, I we're, we're a good 15 minutes into a conversation. I'm sitting here and going, "Why didn't I go?" Because uh, uh, you, you've uh, got like three kids, dude. You gotta stay home. Yeah, that's that's true. That's true. Yeah, we, we did a little plane spotting. Jeremy dragged me out to some weird field next to a, a highway, and we saw some planes, which was fun. Well, Jeremy's always good for a weird field. Oh, so lonely. Yeah, I abandoned ship and, and went to Italy for a few days. But yeah, it was it was a pretty quick trip with BA. It was it was a quick trip with BA with BA, but very very packed and and fun. Well, that, I mean, it's I still think that it's amazing that it's been you know sixty years since they started flying jets across the Atlantic and how quickly things you know kind of ramped up. And uh, when you look back on it, you go 60 years was a long time for the first one. But then, you know, the the first one, it, it was there wasn't a long time between the second and the third and the fourth and the hundredth and the two, you know, it, it ran up pretty quickly. And now there's, you know, 3000 flights a day between, you know, across the Atlantic, which is right now an old trend uh, is coming back and we're flying narrow bodies over the Atlantic again. Well, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's kind of nuts that we went from a 350 mile an hour cruise speed from a piston in 1950 in May of the summer of 1958 to 500 miles an hour over the Atlantic in a comet to 1300 miles over <laughs> 1300 miles an hour over the Atlantic only 11 years later. But otherwise, in terms of speed, progression basically stopped. In fact, it's gotten slower. You take the Comet away, and then you had the, the Convair 990 and 880, which had a very high cruise speed and hasn't really progressed a whole lot since then in terms of speed. But certainly in passenger experience, I think it's quite a bit better now. Uh, but yeah, I, I don't know think a lot anyone, of people would disagree any, strongly with me. That. Nobody yeah, should be disputing that. Yeah, but they do all the time. No, we'll, we'll, we'll get some emails at podcast at fr24.com. I can hear um, the clickety-clack right now. Yeah, and that's... You know, I I would certainly take a, a seven forty seven or a seven eighty seven or or what have you over you know over a Convair or even over a Comet. I mean, 
having never had the chance to fly the Concorde, I am, I guess, falsely nostalgic for it, but I have no baseline of comparison. So I, I'll leave it at that. But I'll take the, you know, pressurized, enclosed, comfortable, you know, quick, reasonably, you know, over 18 hours uh, in an extremely bumpy ride. Yeah, I mean, I think simply on cost alone, because even even if you think about the the jet, the jet age is is somewhat equalizing in terms of experiences that you know maybe you don't have a six course mega dinner per se for every passenger, but it's affordable for so many more people than it used to be. There's just no time well, for it anymore. Well, that was one of the things the flight attendants was saying too, is that you know she went from twenty hours and they would dote on passengers and lavish meals and everything to on the first comet flight she didn't have time to finish the meal service uh, meal services i think they went she said we they served lunch and then or breakfast and then afternoon tea and then we're preparing to serve lunch or something i don't know remember the order either way they didn't get to finish the meal service because it was going so much faster than they were used to but i think that flying is just available and affordable to so many people that it wasn't before and that's something that you just can't replace. And it's safer than it was before. And I think especially in first in business, I don't know how you can argue that the products available now are better than what was available then. The only difference well, is now that, there's economy. That's, that's a, a conversation for another day. Uh, yeah, bring it. Ho- hopefully never. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll have to start an offshoot podcast of... Uh... I know you agree with me, Jason. I I agree. You don't have to convince me, but it's, it's no the rest of these I believe, people. In fact, you called it the golden age of air travel is right now. It is, and I'm not going to get into this argument now, but I believe that to be the case. All right, we will leave this argument for another time, perhaps with some some more folks who who are also opinionated, and we can have a spirited discussion amongst many folks. But yes. but for now, we'll spirited. leave that. And we'll say thanks to Jeremy for joining us and filling us in a little bit about uh, about what you and Jason got up to in, in London, celebrating the 60th anniversary of transatlantic jet travel, cutting down the flight time between New York and London from 18 hours to just over six. So really impressive stuff. Jeremy, thanks as always for joining us, and we'll have you back soon. Thanks for having me. It's always good to chat. And we are back. And Jason is has promised me that he will uh, teach me how to land a 747. Uh, slowly. Okay. Yep. Excellent. Now all we need to do is get our hands on a uh, simulator. Uh, that's the tricky part. That's how they get you. Oh, okay. Is, is it like a timeshare? Do I have to like sit through uh, a thing? And I mean, then... it kind of sort of can, can be. I know BA, they often have other airlines come in because simulators are freaking expensive. So they will often lease out uh, time to other airlines for, tra- oh, that, for that makes uh, sense. crew training. Yeah. That, that makes, it, that it, makes it's good just sense. Like, um, just like an airplane, uh, a real airplane. If the simulator is not simulating being in the air, it ain't making any money. There you go. Well, very cool. Let's move on to Air New Guinea, which had, um, well, I mean, they, they landed short. Quite a bit short. Yes. Uh, 150 yards, I think. So uh, in, yeah. uh, in a lagoon... Yeah, well, I mean, which is less of a lagoon and more just, you know, almost open water. Yeah. But they were flying from Pompeii to, to Chuk and landed short of the runway. And the 
saddest and strangest thing about this story is that initially the everyone was reported safe. The, the U.S. Navy happened to be like right next to the airport and helped get everybody out of the plane. And there were lots of boats and, and one of those things where you know every, everybody got out very quickly. And the initial reports were everyone's fine, everyone made it out, and and you could see the plane just kind of floating in the in the water. And then a couple of days later, they said, "Well, we might be someone might be missing." You know, he came up, the person that we're looking for was out of the plane and, and went to a hospital and we just don't know which one. And then a couple of days after that, or like a day after that, it was the, this person's body has been found, which was just kind of a, a strange and, and very sad thing to go from, you know, everyone made it out to this gentleman lost his life. Yeah. Very strange. And again, we don't know what happened. Pictures from uh, the aftermath actually that doesn't look great. It looks like there are some low clouds and I mean, weather in that region can generally be pretty treacherous, but we don't know what happened. But like all the other incidents we, we cover, we will bring you updates as they come. And in this case, once the Papua New Guinea Accident Investigation Commission has anything to pass on, we'll bring it to you. Yeah. It, uh, it, it'll be interesting to see what the issue was that, that led to, uh, led to the, the short landing. This week, we also celebrated the first of many 50th Boeing 747-related 50th anniversaries. So over the coming months, you'll need to get ready for your your 747 50th anniversaries. And this one was the first one, the rollout anniversary. Yeah. I'm looking, uh, looking forward to the first – the celebration of the 50th anniversary of the first – main gear tire change of the 747. So that, that should be coming up shortly too, I think. Yeah, no, that's, uh, we're, we're working up to that. That one's, that one's going to be a big one. Yeah, big one. I mean, even bigger than the first 50th anniversary Boeing uh, 747 windshield wiper replacement that's anniversary. Was, I, oddly, I was thinking the same thing. So Weird. That, that's also coming up. But no, but it's a big deal. Yeah, yeah it, it is a big deal. It, it, it's the, the aircraft that changed commercial aviation, as we know it, blah, blah, blah. We know the 747 is <laughs> amazing. 50 years is amazing, but uh, it's a dying breed. Yeah, it is. It's a shame. Slowly. Yeah, I got to fly one over the weekend. So that, there that you was go. Good. See, good what, what, more could you, what more could you ask for? But, I wasn't but, on the upper deck. I could ask for that. Well, yeah, there you go. Yeah. I mean, I guess if you asked really nicely. If I kicked someone else out of their seat, yeah. But it was good. It was always nice to fly on board the 747. But yeah, 50 years is uh, like we talked about with Jeremy, how, how quickly we went from the introduction of transatlantic jet flights to the introduduction of the 747 to where we are now. It's kind of how we, weird how things Yeah, I, I mean, ten, 10 years basically. Yep. I mean, from the first transatlantic jet flight to the rollout of the 747, it was, it was 10 years, almost to the day. I mean, which you know, when you think about it, this incredibly short time. And and we posted a photo of uh, the first 747 parked next to the first 737 at the Museum of Flight when they were both parked next to each other outside. And the size difference is just incredible. I mean, the, the leap in, in sheer size of the aircraft is just I was amazed by that. So we'll toss that link in the show notes because it's it's something that uh, I, I think a lot of people would be interested in seeing. You mentioned your travels on British Airways, but uh, Norwegian seems to have overtaken British Airways in New York. They have. Explain. Uh, so this one of all places came from the Daily Mail that Norwegian overtakes Jason. British Airways as the biggest non-US transatlantic airline serving 
New York. So I guess that would be all well, both of our international airports, uh, Newark and JFK. But that's a big deal because British Airways has historically been a huge airline here. And they're not contracting or anything, but Norwegian is just huge at this point. With As BA only operates to London, Norwegian flies to Barcelona, London, Madrid, uh, uh, all the Nordic cities, Stockholm, Oslo, Bergen, a couple cities in, in uh, Ireland at this point. So they're huge, but I want to know, I want to rerun these numbers and see how many of these flights or these um, passengers transported are actually on Norwegian aircraft. So they're 787s or 737 maxes and not some disgusting Wamos Air 747 or, or, or something like that. So the numbers are Norwegian carried 1.76 million passengers 12 months ending July compared with 1.63 million by British Airways. But Norwegian can't actually carry all those passengers because so much of their New York operations are on leased equipment from high flight. Seven, six, sevens from Euro Euro Atlantic. Atlantic. Yes. Wamos Air. So many others at this point. Maybe um, Norwegian will pick up those uh, Premier A321 Neos. Maybe. Uh, maybe. Uh, <laughs> I, I hope they don't waste a slot at JFK with them. But yeah, oh, I also forgot the A380s that they, they used with Hi-Fi over the summer that turned into a disaster of an operation. But that, that's still a big deal that Norwegian has expanded so much and, and hasn't managed to go the way of uh, Primera. Uh, yet. I mean- Yet. Or be be bought by someone yeah. like so BA. Let, let's be real. Norwegian ain't making any money. And they haven't since they've started flying at transatlantic because it's been hugely expensive and fraught with issues. And IAG was kind of uh, the shark floating around the, the chum over the, the summer and looking to potentially take a, a large chunk out of Norwegian. But that hasn't happened as of yet. Well, we will, as always, follow along with our, our Norwegian theme. As, right. as it so happens. And you know what? Right behind British Airways, do you know what the, the next biggest airline is? Next biggest non-US airline? Lufthansa? Ooh, close. Right between British and Lufthansa is Emirates. Oh, yeah. It makes sense. Yeah. I mean, and then because we're, we're talking passenger numbers, right? Right. Sheer yeah, so, passengers so, carriage. So, yeah, the A380 would, would definitely so, help with the passenger If for whatever numbers. reason you're interested, United is is number one for in total, 32 million. Then Delta, JetBlue, American Southwest, Spirit Air, Canada, Alaska, Norwegian, British, Emirates, Lufthansa, Air France, Virgin Atlantic, Virgin America still listed. Cathay, Aer Lingus, LL, Alitalia, and then Aeroflot round out the top Who 20. Who published the list? Port Authority. Oh, okay. Interesting. We'll find the raw numbers from the Port Authority and, and put those in the show notes. Yeah. So let's close off with some new planes in the air for airlines, not not new, actually like new total aircraft. Today, Air Tahiti Nui took their first of four 787s and promptly flew it to Oklahoma City. As one does. I mean, when I think Tahiti, I, I think Oklahoma City. So I posted that on Twitter. And Ben Mutzbaugh, the um, Today in the Sky, the writer for USA Today, set the record straight. It was a crew replacement. They swapped the crew, added fuel, so that the second crew can begin their training on the 787. And so they then flew to LAX where the, the aircraft is going to rest for a couple days before heading back to Tahiti. So that a, a very lovely painted aircraft and one to keep an eye out for Auckland first 
and then LAX, and then the routes expand from there. Another uh, A340 airline, but the 300. Right, right. And that'll keep serving LAX for at least a little while. Right, and uh, they're an all yeah. A340 airline. You've flown them before, right? Nope. No? Nope. Okay, never mind. Okay. I thought, you, no, didn't you fly them, uh, or not them, but what, didn't you? Nope. Okay. Fiji. Fee, that, see, I was close. Close. You know, natural beauty, that part of the world. Yeah, taking new airplanes, but Airbus, but close. I'll have partial credit. I will take my partial credit. Another 787 that just went home with a new airline is the uh, EVA Air first 787. Their first of 23, I believe, split between Dash 9 and the Dash 10s. So that'll be fun. They, they took theirs home to, to Taipei. They didn't stop in Oklahoma City on the way. And then Hainan took delivery of their first A350, which was going to go to Capital Airlines, but because they're all – the ownership structure is a mystery to me. Well, not, not quite a mystery, but more of an enigma. I'm pretty sure this aircraft is now destined for Hainan, right. painted in Capital Airlines. Going to livery. be repainted in, in Hainan. However, it was not taken up from Azul, which is partially owned by Hainan. So there's all sorts of weird happening here. Okay. So we'll put a flow chart in the show. <laughs> anyway, they, they got their first A350. So look for that soonish, I guess. Soon. As soon as they so, repaint it and then put it back into service. But that's what's going on. Yeah, this was uh this aircraft is yeah, this is line uh actually I can't see the line number, but this was a non taken up unit from Azul, transferred to Capital Airlines, again not taken up, finally taken by Heinen, which is just ridiculous. So just move moving the chess pieces around to, Pretty to much. get the airplanes where they need it's to be. It's all the house money. Should we close the show with some beer cans? Sure. All right. So in previous episodes, mentioned recycling aircraft and what recycled aircraft become. And one of the things that, that Jason and I mentioned were the aircraft become beer cans or just cans in general. A listener wrote in having run some numbers on what would happen if you turned an A380, excluding the engine area, into cans. I have no way to confirm if any of this is correct. If someone else would like to, to check his math, feel free. But you can turn an A380 into 12,455,378 cans. Hmm. What so size they, cans? Are we talking 12-ounce, 20-ounce cans? How big are these cans? I assume we're talking about the, the standard US 12-ounce everywhere else. Uh, was it 330 milliliter cans? Hmm. So I assume that's, no that's expert, what we're talking but about That here. sounds exactly correct. <laughs> All right. Let's leave it at that. Yeah. This has been episode 42 of AvTalk. If you are listening and you haven't subscribed, please do. The best part about subscribing to the podcast is that you don't have to go out and look for the podcast. It comes directly to you on your device, whatever right. and, device and that might it, be. It helps the download numbers go up. Well, side note, it helps the download numbers go up. That's right. Because apparently – and the magic of the tech universe is the more people that subscribe, the more the podcast is shown to other people. I'm mm. no expert, but I think that's exactly right. That sounds accurate. 
All right. In any case, subscribe because we would love to have you subscribe, but also subscribe because it makes your life easier and it makes it so that more people can see the podcast. If you are subscribing on iTunes or you listen through iTunes, go ahead and leave a rating or a review. And that also helps get more people to be able to listen to the podcast. And it helps us with feedback. If you want to send us an email, podcast at fr24.com. Or if you like Twitter or Facebook, find us at FlightRadar24. I am Ian Pechnik here as always with Jason Rabinowitz. And thank you for listening. We will talk to you in our next episode. <music> <laughs>